Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There are a lot of bills that are proposed in the Connecticut General Assembly. Legislative committees put the work into those bills, and they decide that the proposals are worth moving forward to the full House and Senate. The co-chairs of those committees then have to defend those bills on the floor as members of the opposing party ask questions. Today, where we live, we speak with the co-chair of the legislature's Public Health Committee, Senator Mary Doherty Abrams. Now, public health has taken center stage during the pandemic, and some proposals before this committee have been among the most emotional of the session, like the removal of religious exemptions to school vaccines and a failed proposal to allow terminally ill people to ask for lethal prescriptions from doctors. But a host of issues that come before the committee have yet to be decided. Coming up, we'll talk about them, and we'll take your questions too. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us on Zoom, again, is Senator Mary Doherty Abrams, again, co-chair of the legislature's Public Health Committee. She's a Democrat who represents Cheshire, Meriden, Middletown, Middlefield, and Rockfall. Senator, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me this morning. Now, I'm actually talking to you on the day that Connecticut lifts most of its COVID restrictions, including social distancing. And we've heard from the CDC that says people who are vaccinated can remove their masks. How are you feeling about this day and these milestones? I am very excited about it, and I'm very proud of our state. I think we have done an incredible job in meeting the challenges of this pandemic, and this is one of the rewards of it. I do think people uh, still need to be cautious. I think that people should get out and get vaccinated if they haven't already done so and they're able to. Um, but I think you can't deny the results that we've had. And, and that's really a testament to who we are as a community and as a state. Do you worry that people may uh, not take it seriously and think that it's they're in the clear, especially those who are unvaccinated for whatever reason? Uh, it's summer, getting close to summer. People don't want to wear masks. Are you concerned that we might see an uptick in infections? Um, I'm I'm hopeful that we do not. I think that there's enough information out there so that people know the precautions that they need to be taking, and um, I think that we're ready for this. I certainly think that um, people are ready for it. I think businesses are ready for it. And um, I think that we are in a position to deal with it if there is an uptake. I think that we will deal with it swiftly and in a way that will protect the public health. It's been reported that there is a, a plateau in a lot of the cities in terms of getting residents vaccinated. What more can the state do, Senator? Well, I think that, um, first of all, I served on the advisory group to the governor on vaccines, and I was in the subcommittee of communication. And I do think that we need to continue to do outreach, um, particularly in some of our urban settings, but throughout the state. 
we need to continue to get the word out there and why the vaccine is important. And um, I think that this, the results that we've had from people who are vaccinated and the hospitalization rates that have happened as a result certainly prove that. So, um, but I don't think it's time to stop reaching out. I think we have to make the vaccine more available and in a way that makes it convenient for people to get it. I wanted to talk about a bill that just was passed in the state Senate yesterday declaring racism a public health crisis. This bill now goes before the House. I wanted you to talk about why you felt this was important, uh, this declaration was needed. Well, um, when you opened, you talked about how emotional some of the legislation that we do through public health has been. And for me, this was certainly one of them. Um, last June, we stood, the Democratic Caucus of Senators stood outside the Capitol and pledged that we would work towards equity in our state. And so for me, as the Senate Chair of Public Health, that meant working towards equity in our health care. Um, I think that the first step in why this SB1 was so important, and it is SB1 for a reason, um, was to declare racism as a public health crisis. We have enough information to know what the health effects are for people who are experiencing racism, racism in their daily lives. Racism has a profound impact both on an individual's health and on their health outcomes. And we know that these inequities exist in our healthcare system. So I think that this bill was particularly important and to make that declaration shows an acknowledgement, which I think is always the first step. And there are pieces within this, this bill had 21 sections to it, each of which would have been worthy to stand on its own. So um, I think the next part was really to focus on some data collection and to continue in that way. Um, we also, it set up a commission on racial equity in public health, which will continue to look at those issues in various settings and in the environment and in housing and education and all of those ways. Um, and also one of the sections that I'm particularly proud of and interested in was something that Senator Moore, one of my colleagues brought to our attention, um, was gun violence prevention and intervention. You know, in the state, we've had a real uptick in gun violence, and it is a problem I think all of our communities are dealing with. So um, th this uh, advisory group is going to pull together a lot of the grassroots organizations that are addressing gun violence prevention and intervention and try to look at a way to coalesce them, to look for funding sources um, so that we can address that problem. But I think until we acknowledge something, we can't really change it. And so I'm really excited about the fact that we were able to pass SB1 yesterday in a bipartisan way, um, thanks to also to our leadership in the Senate with uh, Senator Looney and Senator Duff. Um, people realize that we can either perpetuate the status quo and the system that brought us here, I know that there's often conversation about, are we responsible? Are we not responsible? Personally, I think that we have to acknowledge where we are now and make the decision that either we move forward and we make changes or we live with the system we have. And I'm not willing to do that. So I'm really proud of all the work that went into SB1, all the advocacy groups that we worked with. And I think it's gonna make a real difference in our state.
Senator, let's talk more about the data that's part of this legislation. On Monday, Greater Bridgeport Area Prevention Program President Reverend Nancy Kingwood spoke when she urged lawmakers to pass the bill, and she praised the parts of the legislation that focused on the collection of public health data. This is what she shared. Without race, ethnicity, and language data, we are missing opportunities. We are missing funding opportunities. We are missing identifying trends. What are the trends in the Black and the Brown communities? We won't know unless we have access to this data. And I'm wondering when we when we hear uh, uh, the Reverend talk about all this data that's missing, uh, even before the pandemic, these health disparities persisted in communities of color. And so I'm wondering, you know, where the state has been in terms of focusing in on these communities. Well, um, for the data collection, I couldn't agree with her more. I mean, part of the SB1 was to uh, pass uh, the ability to collect data based on race, ethnicity, and language, and that the Office of Health Strategy would be reviewing that and using it to address health equity in our state. That's something that people have been working toward for many years. And in fact, when I first decided to run, one of the first groups that I spoke with was a group in middle, well, actually they were in Middletown, but they're, they're in a lot of the surrounding communities, the Ministerial Health Fellowship. Um, and they spoke to me about the need for this information. So I, I've been very interested and very committed to making this happen for several years now. Um, I think the pandemic just showed us how really relevant it is when we knew that it was uh, affecting our black and brown communities at a higher rate. Um, it's one thing to anecdotally note that, but it's a different thing to really have the data to prove it. So having data to me is essential if we're gonna make the changes we need to make. I think for some listeners who haven't been following this issue, and there are other states and cities that have declared racism a public health crisis, we know that CDC has done research and commented on this. Uh, the CDC saying racism, both interpersonal and also structural, negatively affects the mental and physical health of millions of people, and that prevents them from attaining their highest level of health. When we talk about health disparities in communities of color, black women four times more likely to die of pregnancy-related complications than white women. Black men more than twice as likely to be killed by police by, as white men. And the average life expectancy of African Americans is four years lower than the rest of the U.S. population. And we see these same trends in our state, Senator? Yes, I think that we're no different. And I think that it is about time that we acknowledge that and do something about it. So there was an, another whole section, several sections in this, in SB1, that did address maternal health, particularly for women of color. Um, we know that the use of doulas has been shown to improve those outcomes. And we have um, in this legislation defining the term doula, and also for them to work towards this summer, towards going through a scope of practice review, which is something DPH does to certify certain areas and, and what they're able to do. Um, we also had um, a working group that we're going to do with uh, public health and DPH to look at breast health and breast cancer awareness um, to promote a greater understanding of the importance of early detection and a focus particularly on young women of color and high school students. And we also, this um, the hospitals have 
agreed and are going to be providing um, implicit bias training for their staff members who provide direct care to women who are pregnant or in, in the postpartum period. Um, and lastly, I think a really important piece is the state has always had a, a maternal mortality review committee. However, they've always shared their results only with the commissioner of public health. And with this legislation, they're going to be sharing information and perhaps recommendations to the public health committee on an annual basis. So we can see how we are addressing maternal health in our state and what we might do uh, legislatively to promote that. You're hearing State Senator Mary Doherty Abrams here on Where We Live. She's co-chair of the General Assembly's Public Health Committee. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Earlier, you talked about gun violence, and there was an informational session on gun violence um, before the General Assembly. And you also represent Middletown, and there was just a recent incident where a young person was killed by gun violence, a grad of Middletown High, a 17-year-old was wounded. This is all happening while a weekend of shootings in Connecticut's major cities left at least six people dead and others wounded. That's Hearst reporting. There's been an uptick in gun violence seen across our country in recent months. What are some of the factors, Senator? Well, I think for me personally, um, you know, we had an uptick in gun violence this summer in, in Meriden, and uh, there was a group of us uh, led by one of our uh, city councilors, uh, Sonia Jelks, who went out to these communities um, to talk to people and to let them know how they might report and that we're here for them and that we know that they did not want to be living this way. Um, and that we acknowledge that and we're doing what we could to prevent further gun violence. And there was a moment for me that I don't think I will ever forget. I mean, we were standing outside of a, a place where a young man had been shot and there was, you know, how people will bring flowers or things to memorialize that. And it was next to a home and through the window in the home was a young girl who looked to be about four years old, um, which is close to the age of my granddaughter. And she was staring out the window, looking at that memorial, looking at us, and I thought, what kind of an impact is that having on her? Why should a young child in any of our communities be looking at that and seeing that as somehow being normalized? Um, and the trauma that happens and what effect that has will have throughout her life. And I just knew that this was a, a situation that we had to work at both locally and in the state. So I'm very proud of the Gun Violence Prevention and Intervention Advisory Group that was part of SB1 and the work that my colleague, Senator Moore, has done on this issue to pull together. There are a lot of grassroots uh, organizations that are trying to address this. And I think coordinating them and looking for funding will really help us address not only uh, preventing gun violence, but also how we can intervene when it does happen in a way that would be most constructive and to end it as quickly as possible. I understand the governor has proposed using $3 million of federal COVID money over the next two years towards reduction strategies. And often we hear about resources uh, being directed to these communities, but this has also been ongoing uh, for several years. So what can the state do to really address some systemic issues long before there's gun violence, Senator? Well, I think some of what we can do is what we did in SB1, which is acknowledge racism as a public health crisis, because 
you know, trauma that happens through gun violence, um, not to mention the violence itself, is obviously a health issue. And so we need to be doing the things that we're doing in SB1 to address those things, to make people in these communities feel that we are connected and that we are looking out for them and to find ways to direct them that are more productive. Um, Senator Looney in his closing remarks when we did SB1 spoke about how we, if we have young children who don't feel connected to their government, who don't feel connected to their communities, who don't see life as precious, um, then this is one of the outcomes. So it's not enough just to work on gun prevention and intervention in a silo. We must look at all of the issues that affect young people in particular and how they're viewing the world and how we're connecting with them to let them know that they're a part of this community and there's a better way to solve conflict. You're hearing State Senator Mary Daugherty Abrams again here on Where We Live. She's co-chair of the General Assembly's Public Health Committee. After the break, we're going to talk about some uh, bills and uh, now law that led to some emotional testimony before her committee and the General Assembly. And we'll also take your calls to 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, my guest on Zoom, State Senator Mary Daugherty Abrams, co-chair of the General Assembly's Public Health Committee. She represents uh, several towns and cities, including Cheshire, Meriden, Middletown, and Middlefield. If you're a resident and you have a question for your state senator, you can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Let's talk about uh, the vaccine law. We know that uh, opponents uh, flooded online public hearings and held big rallies outside the Capitol. They fought one of the hottest proposals this General Assembly session. It had been brought up in previous sessions, a bill that was signed into law by the governor that phases out the religious exemption to school vaccine requirements. This bill passed through your committee, Senator Daugherty Abrams. How difficult was it dealing with the opposition and trying to find compromise here? I think that um, it was difficult. I think you could go to my Facebook page and see that um, it, it's not an easy issue. 
However, you know, for for myself and many members of our committee and those who voted for it, it did pass bipartisanly out of the House. Um, it was a matter of science and public health, and that's our charge. So let's talk about some of the compromises. Uh, I understand, again, not everyone in uh, the, the Democratic Party and the General Assembly really agreed with the grandfathering in of children who already had religious exemptions, but that's been done. I've also heard from lawmakers and reporters who've covered this issue that uh, the bill and now that's become law, is it easier now for families to seek a medical exemption? Um, have the requirements been loosened at all, Senator? Yes. Um there part of the bill also included the fact that we were going that in Connecticut we were going to eliminate the non-medical exemption in our case a religious one and um, I do use that term because some states have personal exemptions or philosophical exemptions so we didn't want to uh, give any allusions to the fact that we were going to replace religious exemption with some other kind of non-medical so in our state we'll have no non-medical exemptions and in terms of the medical exemption, it does allow for, um, for healthcare providers to look at other things beyond just what the CBC list of contraindicators are. So they can look at things such as family history and other things at their discretion and fill out a form to say that, you know, it's really between the healthcare provider and the patient. We felt that that was really where that decision lies and that we wanted to give healthcare providers the opportunity to make their um, you know, best decision in working with families. The other piece of this bill is that it um, allows for insurance companies to pay for 20 minute um, consultations with families to talk about vaccines. We heard from some people that you know they felt rushed in that process, wanted more information, and we felt the best place to get that information would be with their health care provider with an opportunity for consultation. When we talk about who uh, this will now apply to in terms of new students coming into a school, I know House Republican Minority Leader Kendall Laura raised a question about who's eligible to keep their religious exemption. He questioned whether parents of kindergartners who start this fall who requested religious exemptions before the bill was approved, will they still get those exemptions, Senator? What can you tell us? Well, what I can tell you is that the grandfathering clause, when it came out of committee, started at the seventh grade, because that's where we saw um, from seventh grade below was where we really saw the trend um, that becoming quite high. So we thought of um, grandfathering those people in seventh grade and above. Um, it was amended in the House to go down to kindergarten. The reason that it was amended was many of my colleagues felt like they didn't want anyone who had started school to be um, not able to go anymore. So they really wanted to protect those kids who had already started in a school that they could continue in that school. Um, in terms of kindergarten, in terms of enrollment, enrollment is usually in, um, I, I think in all cases, this case might become different. But in most cases, or all cases, enrollment is determined by the local um, school board. So I would expect that decision to be with them. However, you know, if the if the state Department of Education feels differently, or the Department of Public Health, I certainly would understand if they wanted to make that judgment for the whole state. Mm. 
Does that concern you at all? That that standard may not apply depending on which school district we're talking about. If if the you know the whole goal was to try to keep herd immunity to be a certain level, a certain threshold to protect uh, public health of all students, uh, Senator, what can you say about that? Well, I would say that we, one of the things that we based this on was the fact that every year um, in the fall, schools report what their immunization rates are. So we'll still have that information to see if there's any, you know, certain pockets where it's not maybe not being enforced in the way that um, it should be, or maybe in places where it's being enforced too strictly. Um, so we can see that information every yearly, like we just like we do now. So at least we have that mechanism to kind of keep an eye on um, how this is playing out as it gets implemented. And we know that uh, some groups have already filed suit uh, challenging that this uh, ban on religious exemptions is unconstitutional, but we should say Connecticut is the sixth state to get rid of this religious exemption. Do you think this ban will hold, Senator? Well, if it stays with what historically has happened, then I do. Um, the courts have ruled that public health takes precedent. And so um, that's what's happened in the states, as you, as you mentioned, who have already done it. And so I expect that our state will do the same. However, I totally respect their, our judicial system and, and they'll look at the information and make their decision. You can join our conversation with Senator Daugherty Abrams, again, co-chair of the Public Health Committee, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Peggy's calling in from Litchfield. Peggy, go ahead. Oh, doesn't look like Peggy's there, but I still have her question for you. She says that Lyme disease is also a public health crisis. So what's the state doing to help with this, Senator? Oh, that's a good point. I know that we have um, other things that we've looked at in the public health committee, Lyme disease, triple E, um, you know, the fact that we are doing these, the bills that we're talking about now, public health has been very busy looking at a lot of things. Um, and so we, we do, we work together, especially with the um, environment committee on things like Lyme disease, because there's a lot of overlap. And um, we do have to keep looking at all of those issues as we move forward. I just want to ask one more question related to vaccines. Uh, we know that uh, we're hearing that not enough people are getting vaccinated to stop transmission through herd immunity, immunity when we talk about COVID. Do you think that the COVID-19 shot should be added to the list of required school vaccinations, Senator? I think at this point, it's, um, it's so it hasn't been approved by the FDA. It went through a different approval process called the EU Emergency Use. Um, and so I think that that's a consideration, but as with all immunizations, I leave those decisions to the experts, which in this case is uh, public health. So um, I would not want to be in the position of making a decision like that in something that is not in my bailiwick. So hopefully revisiting in the future once there's more guidance from the CDC and of course, when this vaccine is, is available to younger children as well, Senator. Yes, I mean, I think we have to keep looking at it. I don't, you know, and, unless it, we reach a point where COVID goes away, um, that would be wonderful, but I don't see that happening in the near future. So since it's not happening, I think we do have to look at how we're keeping our children safe, how we're keeping our communities safe. I think that's what it came down to with the vaccine bill in general. I know the opposition was very loud, but they were still a minority in our state. Uh, the majority of people in our state understand that 
uh, immunizations keep our children safe and they also keep our communities safe. So I think that it's uh, very important that we continue to look at that. Um, and as new things arise, such as COVID, obviously we have to pay attention to keep our, we like to call it community immunity rather than herd immunity. But, but um, yes, I think, you know, I think one of the things that people are confused about, or there's a lot of misinformation out there, and if you wouldn't mind, I'd, I'd love to clear it up, is that for school immunization requirements now, uh, students are, need to have the measles, mumps, rubella, it's often referred to as the MMR, polio, uh, diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, um, which is the DTP, usually it's called, um, and hepatitis B and the chickenpox or varicella. So those are the ones that are required to be in school. If you're in preschool, there's a couple other ones that um, are required or if you enroll in kindergarten at a younger age. But those are the ones and those are diseases that we do not want to see return into our communities because it could affect all of us um, and particularly our children. So I think as we look at COVID and see what's happened and how um, not being able to protect ourselves from a disease, how it really, in this case, shut us all down personally and businesses and our economy. Um, we know the importance of immunizations and I think we wanna support that. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Kathy tweeting, one thing she's hoping to see in the future is more discussion of public health impacts and rights of residents in congregate settings beyond nursing homes, looking at the rights of residents in the Demas and uh, de Developmental Services Facilities, Senator. Is this something that you feel like should be looked at more, talking about the rights of these residents and making sure that they're safe as well? Absolutely. And, you know, when, when the session shut down in 2020, um, people on the Public Health Committee and Appropriations and Human Services we did not stop working. We were in constant communication with our constituents, with communities um, like those that living in congregate care, like DDS facilities or, or group homes or in Demas facilities or nursing homes, assisted living, all of those places, trying to make sure we were doing the very best we could. Um, we held a working group in the fall um, to look at some of the issues around nursing homes and assisted living, because you might remember that the governor had a report done called, uh, by a group called Mathematica that reported on how we had handled um, particularly our nursing home situation. So we do have a bill pending that we will be bringing out that uh, works on some of the recommendations that came out of that. And I think some of those recommendations will be helpful in general but also I think that we have to continue looking at if we're doing the best we can for anyone living in congregate care. So let's talk more about that because as co-chair of the Public Health Committee, you have oversight authority for the Department of Public Health. We know that Dr. Deidre Gifford has been the acting public health commissioner since, uh, um, and I'm just curious, it's been for a while now, I don't have it right in front of me, but you know, do you feel like the, the Department of Public Health has done a good job when you mentioned the Mathematica report, obviously this was commissioned by the state, but in terms of, you know, so many uh, people early on in the pandemic uh, living in nursing homes and assisted care facilities that passed away because of COVID. I'm just wondering if you can talk about uh, the work of Dr. Gifford and others at DPH. 
Well, first of all, I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, I think we off we always have to consider all the people who lost loved ones during this time. You know, and sometimes I don't think we pause enough to think of that. And certainly, um, my condolences to to all of them and um, those who were living in congregate care and those who weren't. I mean, it's been a tragic time for our state, for our country, for the world, really, in dealing with COVID. Um, I do think that you can't really argue with the results we've had as the state. You mentioned earlier, you know, that we were loosening restrictions. And I think that's a testament to how we've done. And when you look at us uh, comparatively to other states in, in our country, I'm really proud of how Connecticut has done. And, and the fact is that um, Dr. Gifford has led us through that. Um, I don't know how she's done it running two agencies other than the fact that I also know because of my role as uh, Senate Chair of Public Health, the incredible staff that works at DPH. Um, I will say were mistakes made? Could we have done better? Absolutely. I mean, I think that that's true when you go through any kind of crisis. And I think that the important thing is whether or not you look at those things, acknowledge them and try to do better. Um, one of the things when you talk about nursing homes in particular, you know, we had great conversations ongoing with uh, 1199, the union that represents many of the workers in those um, facilities. And they were just invaluable in terms of helping us understand from a worker's perspective what they were seeing, what their challenges were. Um, so I, I think that there were a lot of things we could have done differently and should have done differently. And I hope we'll do differently in the future as we put legislation forward and we learn from these mistakes. But in terms of uh, Dr. Gifford, um, I think that's really all positions with commissioners are really up to the governor. That's his area to take care of. Um, but I do think that you can't argue with the success that our state has had. Mm. You said that this is the governor's decision. Again, uh, Dr. Gifford running two agencies now. Uh, do you think that the the governor should find a permanent commissioner, either for DPH or DSS? Um, again, I think that they're both huge agencies and important agencies. And I think there's probably a reason that we've always had separate commissioners. However, once again, I will leave that decision to the governor. Again, we just have a few more minutes left with Senator, uh, again, Daugherty Abrams, who's co-chair of the Public Health Committee. You can join us at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Let's talk about another um, issue before the Public Health Committee. I understand your committee endorsed a ban on flavored vaping products and flavored tobacco products. This bill was scaled back later by the Finance Department. The latest version only bans flavored vaping vaping products. And this change allows menthol cigarettes to continue to be sold if the bill becomes law. Were you disappointed that that part of the bill was removed? I was extremely disappointed. Um, we passed Tobacco 21 in 2019, and I thought that was, you know, an excellent step forward. But um, I, in my previous career, was a, an administrator at a high school, and I saw the vaping um, you know, really how, how chronic and uh, it became among our students and learned that the, these companies had really targeted our young people to be their new clients for life um, using flavors. So I was immediately interested in finding a way to ban flavors in our state. In the course of that, 
one of the things that came out was the fact that the uh, black and brown communities had stepped forward, a lot of their leaders had stepped forward to say that they'd done the same thing with menthol flavor in their communities to get people to use the product and to become addicted. And so um, they were asking that we please, you know, get rid of the menthol. And so that's what we put into our public health bill. Um, my co-chair, Jonathan Steinberg, and I, you know, wanted that piece in. Obviously, that's the bill we put forward. I went through the finance committee and um, the governor had a, had a similar bill, has a similar bill um, in the House right now. And they, what basically happened was they turned our bill into the same as the governor's bill, which eliminated, um, which did what you would, what you described and took the menthol piece out of it. And also only addressed it, the flavor ban towards vaping, as opposed to we had it into all tobacco products. Mm. Is it because of the revenue that's generated when we talk about flavored tobacco products? Uh, the original broader ban would have cost the state more than $100 million, I understand, in tax revenue. Uh, does this point to the state being too dependent on this tobacco tax revenue, Senator, even if it's harmful to people? Yes. I mean, for me, the idea of how those things are figured out when they don't take into account the long-term medical costs to our state for people who are um, addicted to nicotine and end up having health complications, when they don't take into consideration the lost time to uh, employers for people who have um, you know, more health concerns because they are smokers, um, it doesn't take into the broader thing. And I think that's one of the things that as someone new to politics, is um, something that I find interesting and frustrating at the same time, that it's such um, being able to look at things in a more long-term way. And we know that, that tobacco does no good for people. And so why do we keep relying on it and why do we keep using it in our state? I will say that there are people who spoke to me um, who said that it was not only the financial cost, but also a concern about setting up a black market um, there are people that were concerned about the fact that this is a legal product, and so shouldn't adults be able to do? We do have Tobacco 21 now. Shouldn't adults be able to do that? So I think that there were more perspectives than just the financial one. However, I do think relying on something like this for financial gain in our state is something we should be looking at. I should say that NPR and others have reported the FDA is moving to ban menthol cigarettes and flavored cigars. Uh, we know how uh, slow bureaucracy can move, and we'll see what happens uh, with that whether when the FDA publishes its final rule. But, Senator, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Again, that's State Senator Mary Daugherty Abrams, co-chair of the Public Health Committee. We'll see what gets accomplished between now and the end session, which I believe is coming up pretty soon. Thanks again, Senator. Uh, coming up here on Where We Live, we're going to hear from Christine Stewart from CT News Junkie and NBC Connecticut with more context on these bills moving through the session.
is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. We just heard from State Senator Mary Doherty Abrams, a Democrat co-chair of the legislature's Public Health Committee. The session ends June 9th, uh, so just a few more uh, weeks to go. What bills from this committee, the Public Health Committee, are likely to come before the full House and Senate? For more context, joining us now on Zoom is Christine Stewart, owner and editor-in-chief of Connecticut News Junkie, CT News Junkie, and a reporter for NBC Connecticut. Christine, welcome back. Thank you. Good morning. So what did you think about the bill that passed the Senate yesterday declaring racism as a public health crisis? It actually sets aside some resources. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on on some of the the asks in this bill and what happens now before the House. You know, it made me think. So I started when I, it was probably three or four years ago, started looking at, you know, um, black maternal health. And, you know, nationally, there was a trend in which um, black mothers were were dying at higher rates than um, white women. And I wanted to see if that was true in Connecticut. And we just did not have the data to even, you know, reach any of those conclusions. The data that we had was very sparse. So I think the good thing that is in this piece of legislation is that it is going to require the Department of Public Health to collect uh, more of this data so that policymakers can then make good decisions about it. Um, I think that this bill has a lot of study panels that it creates too. And, uh, you know, I did a story a few years back. Um, there was a year, can't remember when it was, but they just created all, all of this legislation, created all these task forces and panels, which require then legislative leaders to find volunteers to appoint to these things. And, you know, and they just remain empty um, because they can't find the people to be able to, you know, some, some task forces do really well and some do really poorly. So I think that that's gonna be something to watch. That's interesting, a point that you bring up. Uh, there are a lot, again, of parts to this bill. And so as far as uh, you think it'll get approval in, in the state house, that there is uh, support behind this declaration of racism as a public health crisis? I think that it will get um, support in the house. I think we will see it go to um, Governor Lamont's desk. I mean, remember, this is SB1. So this is the, the state Senate's highest priority this year. Um, so they got it done and they sent it to the House. There's plenty of time before June 9th for the House to have a debate on this. Um, and I guarantee that there's been negotiations that this will get taken up for a vote. How big of a year was it for the Public Health Committee, uh, just looking at this bill, but also that uh, ban on religious exemptions? I think the uh, end-of-life uh, bill did not make it through. I'm just wondering if you can talk about all of the moving parts and, and some of the, the legislation that you're watching. Yeah, they dealt with a lot of weighty emotional issues. Um, the legislation that would allow somebody to um, take their own life if they were terminally ill. That actually did pass out of the Public Health Committee. Mm. It ended up um, failing in the Judiciary Committee. It just didn't get a vote because it was six votes short on that committee. But um, that's the farthest that bill has gone in, I think, about maybe eight years. Um, so there was that. There was the um, removal of the religious exemptions. Um, there was all of the COVID stuff that they were dealing with. And, you know, the, the public health 
crisis and, and how we handle um, COVID in nursing homes and other congregate settings uh, was also on their plate. And some of that legislation has still um, yet to be brought up. So um, we're, we're still waiting for, for some of that to hit the calendar. As far as the, the law now that bans religious exemptions, what did you think of the way Senator Abrams answered that question related to, is there ambiguity for school districts about when a, a child is technically enrolled and what that means for kindergartners, something that uh, Representative Candelora has brought up? Yeah, I think that um, the, the legislation itself was really kind of short on enforcement and exactly, you know, what you do if, if a child... Um, there's a lot of non-compliance. So, you know, if a child is vaccinated, but their parents just haven't turned in the information to the school nurse, you know, who are you going to hold accountable? And are you actually going to prevent that child from then entering school? Um, and we also have a lot of other requirements. Um, you know, if you're going to a public school and you're in pre-K, um, you have to have a flu shot before you go back to school in, in January after after Christmas break. If you do not have a flu shot, you are not allowed to go, um, go back to school if you're under the age of five. So, you know, I, I think that they're gonna be feeling their, their way out on, on some of this stuff. And, you know, they may want to go back and look at enforcement. And it kind of depends on what's gonna happen with the courts because this is already, um, lawsuits have already been filed uh, in court challenging this. Um, and I think we're gonna have to wait and see what happens. Mm. Can you tell us more about uh, the groups that have filed this lawsuit, the usual suspects when we think about some of the COVID restrictions too that they had problems with? Yeah, so um, the Connecticut uh, Freedom Alliance is one of the ones that has filed the the lawsuit, you know, saying that it's it's unconstitutional. Um, it's a violation of their um, their religion and and their free speech. Um, and it was filed in federal court. And I think that we expect a few more lawsuits, possibly one to be filed uh, in state court also. Um, so, but they've, they've failed as far as the mask mandate for school children is concerned. Um, that lawsuit, the Supreme Court said, no, look, um, you know, you need to wear masks uh, in school and children should be wearing masks. Um, and I think that, you know, we're going to come up against this issue, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, if you're under the age of 12, you can't be vaccinated. Um, so kids are going to have to be wearing masks uh, for a very long time. And my six-year-old said to me the other day, she's like, you know, it's not fair. It's not fair that I have to keep wearing a mask and, you know, that adults don't have to if they're vaccinated because she can't get vaccinated because she's six. My five-year-old said the same thing, Christine. <laughs> it's, it's been a it's been a hard year. Uh, moving on from from COVID-related issues and vaccines, I understand NIPS are something that's been brought up before the general assembly. Can you explain? Yeah. So NIPS. So there's <laughs> there's a private proposal and the public proposal. So there's there's a proposal within the legislature to increase the bottle deposit from a nickel to 10 cents and to include nips in that. Um, also, the industry came forward with a proposal this year um, saying that, look, they're going to put a, a five cent eco fee or surcharge uh, on the on the nips and they're going to then redistribute that money to cities and towns because they know wh what cities and towns those nips were sold in. 
So, but environmentalists are like, well, that doesn't take care of the litter problem because it doesn't yes. require anybody to bring their nips back to, to a package store for recycling. But nips are complicated in that there are no um, redemption uh, machines that accept nips. Um, so there's really no way to uh, recycle them. I think the state of Maine passed um, NIPS into their bottle bill in 2017, and they um, they do something like by weight. They take the they take the NIPS in and they weigh them and um, do the redemption fees that way. Um, but package store owners don't necessarily want to have these little bottles returned to their stores. So stay tuned on that issue, huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Speaking of Maine, you mentioned that I'm just curious about when we think about our bottle deposit that's already in place. I understand Connecticut doesn't redeem as much as other states. Why is that? It's just going into the state coffers. Yeah, no, we are, you know, we are uh, 50% redemption. So, you know, I think that it's a lot that a lot of the redemption centers, um, you know, have closed. So there, there's fewer places to take those bottles back. And I think that we went to single stream recycling, which you know, I think a lot of people uh, appreciate being able to throw it all into one bin, but that also created other problems in the recycling stream and that, you know, the quality of um, what we get and what re-enters the market is not as good as it could be. And really glass is the problem. Being able to separate out glass um, and have a clean glass product um, would be really helpful. And so that would mean that we would have to move away from single stream recycling. So it's a lot of education of the public on this issue. Well, thank you, Christine Stewart from CT News Junkie and NBC Connecticut, who just recently celebrated a birthday. Happy birthday, Christine. Thank you. Today's show produced by Matt Dwyer with help from Robin Doyne Aiken. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Tomorrow we speak to National Geographic underwater photographer Brian Scary. You've probably seen his cover story on growing body of research about whale culture. That's tomorrow. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.